Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. Today, I got a chance to interview Senator Doug Mastriano from Pennsylvania's 33rd District, and I really enjoyed the interview, thought it was a great blessing, and I think it'll be a blessing to you as well. But first, we will cover our law of the day, and today's law is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. And here is what it says. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, concerning which I command you today, on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. All right, that law, given towards the end of Deuteronomy, is quite important, and there are three characteristics that I think are really worth considering when we look at this law. First, this memorial, the stone monument or memorial, was to be displayed plainly and publicly on top of a mountain. So, it's very obvious that anybody entering the land would be able to see it, and that those that see the mountain, see Mount Ebal, would be reminded of it, and anyone who goes up there would see this memorial and the words that are plainly written on it. So, uh, the law of the land, if you will, this constitution, this memorial, was displayed plainly and publicly, and not in a hidden place, and everyone would be able to see it. It would not only indicate the border of Israel, so it would it would delineate between the border of one land and the border of another, but it would also uh, declare that God is the king over the land. The second important point is that this memorial did not have pictures or statues. It had nothing but the word of God. And the law that it likely contained would be the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments which was the constitution, the covenant of Israel. And essentially, Israel's constitution would be displayed prominently and clearly so that anyone, whether it was a native or a a sojourner, a foreigner, anybody would be able to know the law of the land. It would be clear to them and available to them. And the third thing that is important to keep in mind is that the altar memorial was to be made of uncut or all-natural stone, a stone that had no iron tool used on it. Now, God took idolatry very seriously in Israel, and so there was to be no images, no carved, uh, forged images or shape that's made by man. So man is not to wield a tool on the altar because this is not man's law, it's God's law. God is the sovereign over Israel, not the people. And in fact, it's kind of the reverse. God is the one 
who's going to wield the tool of his word upon Israel and Israel's heart, forming and fashioning his people in his likeness, instead of the typical idolatrous way of people fashioning God in their likeness, which is what idolatry is all about. So in a sense, this memorial was to be bland or basic or common, and it would not have had the glitz and the glamour that the pagan nations would have established for their idols. And interestingly, this kind of prefigures the prophecy that we see in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has a dream and sees uh, that an uncut stone, a stone that's not made by human hands, smashes the statue uh, of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And this stone grows and becomes a mountain filling the whole earth. And it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that cannot be shaken. So what are some applications that we can kind of glean from this today? Well, first of all, God's word and his law is to not only be in the hearts of his people, but but on their lips. It should be displayed. And the fact is that humans are visual creatures, and we need reminders. But we also tend to memorialize what we value, um, which is why we have a memorial to, let's say, the, the two towers that, that fell on, from 9-11. Or we have the Lincoln Memorial, or we have the Pearl Harbor uh, Memorial. So we build monuments and we memorialize those things that are meaningful and valuable to us and identify who we are and what we stand for. And we tear down those things that we do not value, which is why uh, these days so many uh, statues of Confederate generals and, and other people are being removed or torn down. Um, so we tear down what we don't value and we build up what we do value. And also, it's why we publicly have been removing the Ten Commandments um, from courthouses and, and other public facilities and things like that, because as a culture, we no longer value the Ten Commandments and wish to remove them. So what we value as humans is going to come out in how we live, uh, dress, uh, and decorate. Uh, even in our homes, people will display and memorialize the things that they value. So you might have various pictures of objects or of people. Uh, and, and why do you decorate your home a certain way? Because you, you identify a certain way or you value something uh, a certain way. Now, uh, it's not only true about memorials, of course, and decoration, but also clothing. People wear wedding rings as a public display, right? But also as a personal reminder. And the idea of removing your wedding ring out of anger would signal a destruction or an end of the relationship with the other person and a, and a change in values if you were to just rip off that ring at, at, during an argument or something like that. So ultimately, God's people should value God and his word above all things. And this will lead to public displays, baptism being one of them, of course. It's a public display of one's confession of faith in Christ. But there are many other ways that we display things that aren't commanded or required by God. People wear necklaces, they wear wristbands, people have Bible quotes on their walls in the form of pictures or on their coffee mugs, and people display the Ten Commandments. So all these things are outward 
um, displays of what a person would value inwardly. But this applies, this law applies not only to God's people, but to all of culture. Because in a very general sense, all rules, all regulations should be clearly stated, easy to read, publicly accessible. It's like when you go to the swimming pool, and right when you first enter, they're displayed in, in bold black letters, uh, clearly, all the rules of the swimming area, no running and no diving or whatever the case may be. And it's not hidden, it's not confusing, it's not overly complicated. It can be read in one sitting or just in a few moments, you know, so it's very easy and very good for the people. But the opposite is a bad thing. If rules are hidden and confusing, then they serve only to trap and oppress those who are vulnerable, those who are not in the know or connected with the rules or those who don't understand them. The rules are too complicated or they're hidden. They're not um, publicly available. So you have to go to a guru or a specialist in order to figure out just how to navigate um, the maze of rules and regulations. Uh, For Christians, what we believe should be clear in public. This is applicable to, of course, churches who should uh, be able to very clearly and publicly proclaim what they teach and believe. It should not be a secret. It should also be applicable to Christian businesses and schools and homes. Uh, All Christians should make it very clear and very public what they believe and advocate for so as to avoid confusion or accusations or any uh, people calling them uh, deceptive or whatnot. So if a Christian business wants to operate under Christian principles, they need to make that very, very clear. Uh, If it's hidden and secret and they just kind of make Christian decisions in the background, then they could be accused of deception or slate of hand. So actually, being public and being clear helps to avoid attacks from the enemy and and, and critics uh, and those who would oppose uh, the Christian faith. And this uh, serves as a reminder for all. If it's public and clear, then it reminds everybody, including the Christians, as to what they believe and what they stand for. So ultimately, our faith is not a hidden faith, and the king's law, which is God's law, is not to be a hidden law and has application in both uh, the Christian world and in the world in general. And sadly, I do fear that our own culture uh, in America, generally speaking, is becoming more confusing. Rules and laws and regulations, they are becoming more complicated, more cumbersome, burdensome, uh, just too long, uh, volumes and volumes long, uh, not easily accessible, for even the native or the sojourner or the, or the foreigner to understand. And so what ends up happening is uh, you need to hire a special class of people, the lawyers, to help you navigate uh, everything. And this just makes it easier for the in-crowd or those who are connected and well-educated and well-funded to be able to make the law uh, turn their way while those who are vulnerable um, can be easily taken advantage of or or oppressed, or even in a best-case scenario, they just don't know what to do, and they end up in a bad situation. So um, as we become more complicated and less public as a culture, that's what's going to happen. But God's law advocates for the opposite, clear, simple, public, available to all, so that there's no question, no confusion, and no accusations. 
So uh, I hope that that law uh, was a blessing to you. Uh, it's a very, very good law. Um, and I think that, that we should really reflect on this uh, in all of our lives. But now I want to introduce to you Senator Doug Mastriano. So to give a, a, brief, uh, a brief bio, uh, Senator Mastriano is a combat veteran, uh, son of a Navy man. Uh, he is an Eagle Scout and worked at many jobs before as a paperboy, janitor, security guard, uh, cook, pizza delivery guy, and dishwasher. He commissioned in the Army in 1986 and served uh, on the Iron Curtain with the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment in West Germany. He's also served along the East German and Czechoslovakian borders, witnessed the end of the Cold War, and was also deployed to Iraq for Operation Desert Storm, where he actually fought against Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard forces. But then uh, Senator Mastriano went on to serve in Washington, D.C. with the 3rd Infantry Division and U.S. Army Europe. Now, after 9-11, Senator Mastriano also helped to uh, plan the operation to invade Iraq via Turkey and served four years with NATO and deployed three times to Afghanistan. He also, during all this time, earned a Doctor of History and four Master's Degrees. He also earned his Bachelor's of Arts from Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. He's published numerous articles and written several books, uh, including the book Alvin York, A New Biography of the Hero of the Argonne, and his new book, Thunder in the Argonne, tells the complete story of that largest battle in World War I that America fought in, in 1918. Senator Mastriano also appeared on numerous radio programs, including Tucker Carlson, and in 2019, he was elected to serve as senator for Pennsylvania's 33rd district which includes Adams County, most of Franklin County, and parts of Cumberland and York counties. So I am really pleased and honored to have had the chance to interview Senator Mastriano today, and I hope that you will enjoy uh, that interview. So without further ado, Senator Mastriano. Well, Senator Mastriano, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it and look forward to our conversation. Um, if I may first ask, uh, I, I know that you you've recently, I guess recently within the next uh, past five years or so, retired from uh, military service and then entered into uh, politics. And I was curious as to what first led you to want to enter into uh, that kind of a, a dangerous uh, shark infested waters of politics. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you go about even even beginning that process? Yeah. Do you want the long story or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so served in the army 30 years in active duty. That's all I ever wanted to do all my life is be a soldier is as little as five years old. My dad is an 80 man. I didn't relish the thought of being on board ship as he was so often. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up at the feet of the world war two generation, especially my uncle Joe Guba, who was a Sherman tank driver during in Patton's third army during the liberation of France. And yeah, he was there when the Nazis launched their surprise attack, uh, you know, at, um, you know, Wacht on Rhine, the, the, the Rhine watch, they called it, uh, oh. in, in the Ardennes forest and you know, uh, encircled Bastogne entrapping the 101st Airborne, now Air Assault, and the 10th Armor Division, Americans, and the Germans after a few days of, you know, beating our men down in terrible weather and, and artillery and, you know, Panther attacks and Tiger attacks. Those are tanks. <laughs> yeah, the, 
They uh, they sent a delegation in uh, to ask for the Americans to surrender. Now the division commander from the 101st is actually back on leave in D.C. or something. I don't know. He was out, and so General McAuliffe, the division artillery commander from 101st, was in charge. And so the Germans came up to General McAuliffe in the downtown Bastogne in, in Belgium, and mm-hmm. uh, they said, you know, basically you have to surrender. There's no hope. And yeah. uh, McAuliffe's answer was nuts. <laughs> the Germans like, you know, noose, vasus, noose, you know, nuts, what's nuts? You know, yes or no? These strict, you know, humorless Prussian-like officers. <laughs> so, but it's it's funny, um, the Saturday before Christmas every year in Bastogne, they remember that. There's there's lots of festivities in Bastogne in Belgium. They have like a hundred reenactors with American uniforms on. They have about a hundred vehicles, you know, American World War II vehicles. There's usually three or four people as Patton driving through in, in the, the convoy. <laughs> he's, the, he's the party favorite. And then uh, right before that, they go to City Hall and there's a balcony that overlooks the main street there. And they'll, they'll have the mayor of the town of Bastogne. They're up with whatever senior American shows up. Usually it's a colonel. And they have a basket full of walnuts that they throw at the people in honor of nuts. <laughs> so, and it's a lot of fun because you're both ducking and trying to catch his walnuts. It's, it's a it's a hoot. It's hilarious. <laughs> but um, as they're trapped there and all this is happening and you know hope is is lost, Patton takes Third Army, which is in, in, involved in a battle against the Germans around the, the fortress city of Metz and you know pressing towards the Rhine River. And while in combat, he shifts his forces from fighting to the east to advancing north. I mean, that, that's quite a feat. And he, he pivots them like in 40 hours. And so the army, he leaves obviously a, a group holding the Germans there, but the rest of the unit files north. My Uncle Joe's in one of the lead tanks, part of 4th Armored Division, which is kind of, in a lot of ways, the 4th Armored Division in Patton's 3rd Army was, was the spearhead force. Now, I know 3rd Armored Division has a name, Spearhead, so they, they, could, they, could, fight, they could fight over that, that title, you know, but... So as they're just about to break through to Bastogne, uh, Uncle Joe told me it was real foggy. And that time of year, it is a nasty cold fog. And so he had his hatch open as a driver to see where they're headed, you know, towards Bastogne, about the breakthrough. And the rest of his buddies were buttoned up. They had it because they're afraid the German, uh, you know, Panzer Grenadier or somebody or an infantry soldier would throw a grenade in their tank. Sure. So they're all buttoned up. And he says uh, German 88, either from a Panther or a Tiger, opens up, hits his tank, kills everybody inside. But since his hatch is open, he's he's flung out of the tank oh. as it's, you know, ablaze. And as his body's being ejected out of the hatch, his his abdomen must, you know, grab on something. And so it rips open his intestines. And he, he wakes up sitting on the side of the road in a puddle, you know, usually a ditch on the side of the road, uh, in west, waist-deep water, sitting Indian-style with his intestines, you know, floating in front of him. Oh so <laughs> you can imagine, you know, little kid, Doug Mastriano, hey, Uncle Joe, what is you next? He's like, well, and, and he always, his favorite phrase was, you know what I mean? You know, real, real deep Hungarian voice, big, big Hungarian. You know what I mean? I put my intestines back in my stomach and went to get some medics to help me, to patch me up. <laughs> so, back and, in, and they, they patch him up and, he, and they can't keep him in the hospital. You're like, no, you, you're going to be evacuated to, you know, to the rear, maybe London. He's like, no, I'm going back into the line. A tough guy. And so that's my influence of my dad in the Navy. Stories like that from Uncle Joe convinced me. I, you know, and my dad was always sure to re- tell us and remind us we owe a debt to our country. So because of those influences, I was in the Army for 30 years, started off during the Cold War on, on the Iron Curtain, mm-hmm. uh, participated in some of the largest uh, o- operations in West Germany, you know, the, the largest American return to forces, Germany, reforgers. <laughs> Only old people know what reforger means, return force Germany. You have American forces in Germany, and then you bring more over from the USA. 
And uh, we had a quarter million people on this one exercise on the ground, Americans and for the Europeans and Canadians and the Germans on top. And it's just, it was beautiful. It was, it was like war across a beautiful countryside of Germany, September, 1988. Wow. Uh, the year after, served on the Iron Curtain with my platoon, uh, Czechoslovak and East German borders, uh, saw the horrors, you know, re reported the, the incidents, of people trying to escape. Um, and then the Cold War ended, you know, late in 1899, and we saw that happen. It was amazing. As I was on the border near the tri-border area where West Germany, East Germany, Czechoslovakia meet, near Hof, this German town of Hof, a bunch of East Germans are coming across, and I'm there with my men, you know, looking lean and mean. I was young once, had hair, and uh, there I, I, we are in our, in our woodland camouflage, and all these East Germans were kind of terrified of us, and I went over and started talking to them in German, and, you know, welcome to freedom, I, welcome to West Germany, and they all gathered around me, and we were just having a fun time, and I looked into their eyes, and for the first time in the eyes of Eastern European, I saw hope and joy because they were free, the same freedoms that had been rolled back this year in Pennsylvania by our dear governor. <laughs> went off went off this is all by 27 years old went off the desert storm liberated country liberated kuwait fought mm -hmm. some of the toughest one of the largest tank battles last century against uh, the iraqi 10th 12th armor divisions and the iraqi republican guards i call them bad republicans so, <laughs> but we beat them and then uh served you know in assignments around the nation 12 years out of the country served in afghanistan several times with nato and uh, retire, and I was a bit flabbergasted. I was handing over my country and my state in worse condition to my son, to your generation, than, than I got it from my dad's generation. And as I was feeling bad about that and feeling bad for myself, this young guy, a couple of years younger than you, said, uh, it was my last month as a colonel in the Army. He goes, well, colonel, do something about it. And that really hurt. That hit me in the heart because, brother, you know, Eric, it's so easy to whine. It's so easy to complain. It's so easy. Oh, those people in Harrisburg, oh, they all voted for this. You know, throw them all out. I, I hear this crap now from, from these Britannic Republicans, you know. Act 77, vote them all out. Okay, great. Let's have a Democrat Senate. That's a great idea. Yeah. Um, those people in, in D.C. And so instead of sitting back and whining, you know what, I, I put aside riding off into the sunset, you know, making a lot more money and doing some strategy, something I'm trained in, something I love. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, we're, we're in a basic struggle for our freedoms. And I'm glad I did, because who would have predicted that just, you know, a year in as a senator that we'd be struggling for our basic rights and freedoms. And so you just, you chose to enter in at the, um, at the, at the Senate level for PA, or did you start a little bit locally or just you're saying, you know, obviously, a lot of times when I tell the story, it's abbreviated, but let me just lay out everybody so everyone knows exactly what happened. Because, you know, yeah. some, some of these events is like, it is, yeah, it's a pleasure to serve as a state senator, but my odyssey was not so simple or straight as, okay. as you know, as most stories are. So uh, I retire on November 1st, 2017, and, you know, I'm really feeling convicted by the young man's words. And then my congressman announces that he's retiring and it was like him and his dad have had that seat for 47 years oh, the, wow. the Houston family and I'm like oh clearly this is how I can you know do something about it so just about 40 days after I was retired from the army I jumped right into this mm -hmm. I had no idea what we we're doing you know it didn't get very much good help either from the consulting guy that we that we hired yeah. uh, got a little bit of help but you know I look back at all the stuff that I should have been told to do now but anyway so <laughs> We're, we're pressing forward, and uh, I am sure because I am doing God's will, I believe I was doing God's will, that we were going to win, and we ran hard. It's a huge district. The, this, the Democrats changed the district, you know, right as it started, so 
it went all the way out to Fayette and Greene County. And then the Democrats created their own map, which we should have won in, in court. And they shifted it towards had all of Adams County, which is great, closer to me. And then, you know, and it, it went as far as Westmoreland County. It's about a four hour drive from corner to corner. And so uh, my wife and I were out there, you know, engaging people, winning hearts and minds and, and showing them that we're the real deal and not just another lying politician. You know, I was just at an event this past week here for potential, you know, potential gubernatorial. And it, it just disgusts me after this past year of everything we've been through with our freedoms being suspended. Not one of those people out there that are making all these, these nice speeches and these promises. None of them stood with me and helped me in, in, in this fight. I remember how lonely it was this time last year. Mm -hmm. so, you know. I'm just tired of politics and politicians, but we go out there and make the, you know, and, and present our case with a real deal. And uh, the primary comes around, there's eight candidates. Half of them are from my home county. Wow. You know, four of the eight are from at, uh, Franklin County or close to it. And I come in fourth and, I, and I'm like, so I, I was resoundingly defeated. And, uh, but I won Franklin County with by 27 points. That says a lot because, you know, I, there was like about four, four of us were from the county. And you kind of wonder if some people are throwing it in or trying to split the vote. That, that's how politicians play that game. You know, mm -hmm. they, they kind of flatter somebody. Oh, you'd be a good candidate. And, but we still we st knocked that apart. One Fulton County uh, did well in Adams and Cumberland and uh, Huntington counties, but still lost. And so I'm kind of I didn't have a crisis of faith, but I was kind of like, God, what was that about? Because. <laughs> It was a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of time and energy. And Rebby's like, you need to take some time off. You really haven't in the past 30 years, you know. And, uh, you know, taking block leave when you're moving is not really leave. So, yeah. you're, you know, you're moving from one job and another, one location to another. And so we take a few months off. And uh, I, I, I have, uh, the federal government wants, you know, wants me back and because of my top secret clearance and my credentials, PhD, four masters, lots of experience. Yeah, pretty marketable out there for strategy and, you know, and what have you. And then I, right before, just the announcement for that job was delayed by a month. And I, I, I called the, the contact and like, hey, what's going on? And it's kind of like a wink and nod. Yeah, you got it. Monday, you'll, you'll get the call. Make, making a lot more than a state senator makes, by the way, if, if that matters. And it, it, for me, it really doesn't. But I, I put that out there that I am not, I, I am not, I'm, you know, like Trump, well, in, in a much smaller way, I'm losing my, you know, personally. <laughs> Yeah. He lost, I think, what a billion dollars while he was president. But yeah, it's yeah, I don't, that. I don't have that kind of wealth. But, but, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, my the former uh, senator calls me the Friday before and says, "I'm resigning, and everyone knows who you are. You're real popular. You need to run for my seat." So it was, we ran for the seat. We won, huh. you know, two Mays ago, almost two years ago, and uh, it has been a crazy time to been as a state senator. In this time, you know, I'm glad I had about, you know, a year to get my feel and what, what it's like to be a senator before going into this COVID shutdown and seeing what was at stake. And so everything, and thank you for your service, everything that you, you swore in a constitution to, to defend, everything that you do in, in the guard, you know, every, all these basic freedoms are under a, a assault and threat. And it's, I never imagined that I would see a time in America, especially Pennsylvania, where you know, somebody could snitch you out. I mean, like East Germany, there's a snitch line that was created. You know, if somebody wants to report you for some kind of perceived violation or you hurt their feelings, um, that health inspectors will come down to your job and, and threaten to shut you down and throw fines at you. Uh, you know, for a time, some some police, thank, thankfully, hardly any, but just a few, you know, w w harassed businesses like Shep's Barbershop up in Enola. They showed up. Thank God he filmed it. 
And uh, they showed up there threatening him. You know, he's a retired Navy man. I mean, just the sick, dark times. And you would think people that take an oath in the Constitution would say no to the tyrants and to the illegal orders. Oh, hey, you know, I saw the barbershop open. You know, and thank, thankfully, 99.9% of law enforcement just drove by. Yes, they had to do. They had to do a drive-by. It looks close to me. So sadly, of course, you always have a knucklehead in there that's, you know, overzealous and wants to do their job. And, and they have this, this, this ridiculous notion that, you know, that they have to do that. But no, when it's a constitutional debate, it's like, use a little common sense. Thank God, most of our peace officers in law enforcement, they are fantastic. They stood with us. You know, that they did not betray our trust. We, st we, we still have their backs as they have had our backs this past year. But it's been a dark time in our country. Yes, sir. It's just fascinating. I mean, you know, coming in to the, to the Senate uh, right before the lockdown, right before COVID and everything. And then as a man of faith, I, you know, I, I, this is a Christian podcast and my audience is primarily Christians. And I wanted to, you know, get kind of your experience as far as uh, as a Christian I mean, I know as a Christian, I want my faith to impact all that I do, whether you know, as an officer, as a father, as a husband. Um, how has your faith impacted you or, or how have you been able to try to live out your faith in the, in the office of senator? So it's kind of ironic, you know, in, uh, in our society today, the lefties and the atheists, you know, when there's a Christian running for office, you'll see them grill them, you know, can you, can you check your faith at the door? Can you put aside your beliefs? I'm kind of like, yeah, what you first, then you put a, you put, you put aside your atheistic worldview and, uh, how can you make decisions without your, you know, worldview? How, what, what a bunch of hypocrites, they want us to check our faith at the door and, uh, my Christian faith forms my worldview and my understanding of people and of government and, and you know, how I view history. Everything is shaped just as it is for a, an atheist. Mm -hmm. You know, their worldview is shaped by those core beliefs. And the idea that you, me, or even an atheist can set aside their beliefs there, you know, as they deliberate on issues, of course you can't. Those, those form your opinions. Those, sometimes it's a cognitive bias. I, I try... You know, as somebody who did academics for some years, I try to understand what my cognitive, you know, my bias is something that you, know, you just can't even see that you're blind to. Unlike the left, you know, they are, they are driven by, by passion, but not by facts. And, and that's a result of them having a cognitive bias. They can't see their bias. So, but anyway, you know, being a Christian, uh, I accepted the Lord as a, as a teenager. And when I read in the Bible, whatever you do in word and deed, do as if you're doing it unto the Lord. So, Anything we do, you doing this podcast, you know, me as a senator, your service in the military, mine as well, was, is an extension of glorifying God with our lives. So we do the best we can in the position God entrusts us with. And he says, if you're faithful in small things, so he'll put you in charge of large things. That's why in my bio, I take the time to list some of the menial but important jobs I did. You know, I was a janitor, you know, and, and so at nighttime, uh, it, it was a night shift off. I sometimes went to the day shift in this one office building, but the night shift, I had a hundred bathrooms, you know, a hundred toilets to clean. And my goal was, was to be the best janitor I could be that had the cleanest bathrooms, the cleanest toilets that you'd go in there and you would not, you know, smell old urine on the floor that it would, that it would smell clean. It'd be someplace that you'd want to go relieve it. You know, <laughs> men's bathrooms, they're, they're right. terrible. Men are men are slobs. I gotta just tell you that having clean, I prefer cleaning the women's rooms as opposed to the men's room. Men, men guys, you gotta tighten that up there. Watch where you. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty rough. Yeah. 
you, you know, so God entrusted me with that. And as a result of that, you know, my, my boss there, it was a union job, actually. He, he would, I, I was always after time and a half on weekends because he would, you know, it almost double your pay. So aside from the tax, but yes. we got to stop punishing uh, hard workers, by the way, and blue collar workers. I literally had a blue, you know, just janitor shirt that I'd wear, you know, my little name tag on it. Yeah. But you got, and then, you know, I was a pizza delivery guy. And you know, earlier on, I was a newspaper boy. I mean, I was a short order cook. That's actually where I met my wife in college. I was working behind the grill when she came through at Eastern College outside of Philly. And uh, it's interesting because uh, some uh, guys and gals a bit younger than you, Christians, mm-hmm. they, they, you actually hear them. You know, I, I struggle with what God's will is for my life. And I'm like thinking, it's really not that hard. So right now you're a student in high school or college. Your job is to be the best college or, or high school student you can be to, to strive for the best grades grades that you can get, you know, to, to do the best on your papers, your assessments, your exams, as you can, as an extension of glorifying God. We le- read about the great Olympian, Eric Little from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And the, what was it, the 24 Olympics uh, in, in Paris, France? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so we're coming out of the first world war and Eric Little is, is, is a famous athlete from Scotland. And he's, you know, in the Olympics representing the United Kingdom, and they put his heat, his race, you know, on Sunday, and it's against his beliefs uh, to run on Sunday. And he gets so much flack and persecution and mocked and all that, but he stands by his beliefs. Now there's a movie, his his testimony Mm -hmm. is echoing across the generation because he stood by his convictions. Uh, He was given another slot to run, and of course, he got the gold medal as a result. But whatever you do, whether word or deed, do as if you're doing it unto the Lord. So whatever you're doing in life, whether you're a security guard, janitor, a student, or soldier, you're doing it the best you can to glorify God. And that, mm-hmm. that serves as a witness, as evidence of your Christian faith. So we overcome Satan in, in Revelation 12, 11, by the blood of the lamb, yeah. the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto death. So, so of course, Jesus, the blood of the lamb, our testimonies, isn't it? So we're an important, important part of of the witness that's spread across this this nation and world. And we're still talking about Eric Little, you know, almost a hundred years later since the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, uh, Senator, that the temptation, I mean, I've never been in political office, but I imagine one of the temptations might be to compromise or to negotiate, like in order to make a deal and to get something done, at least, at least something, the other side might ask you to compromise. And I guess that I can't imagine having to think through like, okay, well, which, which things will I draw a line in the sand on and which things am I willing to be flexible with? So how have you kind of handled that or faced that? Uh, and how has your Christian faith kind of uh, guided you in that? Yeah, I, I don't think I've been in a position where I've had to, you know, comp- no, I haven't been as a senator in a position where I have to compromise any of my core values or beliefs, you know, as a Christian or as a citizen. So, you know, I, I propose, we all propose lots of legislation and then we have to, you know, manage to navigate with the Senate leadership, whether they're gonna run our legislation on very, very little of our legislation actually runs. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's an exchange, hey, we'll run Mastriana's for, for one of ours. I haven't seen that yet. And that, that's something that happens at a way higher level. You know, some of us have been discouraged from running some bills because of our convictions. So, you know, if we, we should be running, if, if we believe in life of that baby, then we, why don't we run legislation every year instead of this garbage, you know, every other year, maybe, if you're real nice. And uh, we, we might lose a seat somewhere, you know, in more moderate areas of the state if we run something, you know, pro-life. I disagree with them. If, if, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's a core value, like the right to life, which is the single most important issue in our state, 
And I will note at a political event that I was attending uh, this past week, where most of the gubernatorial candidates were gathered, um, we had a fantastic presentation from a pro-life group that, that is literally saving babies by talking to moms that are pregnant, that they feel desperate alone. And uh, every last one of them left the room except me during this conversation. So yeah, you, you know, it says in uh, Romans chapter 16, you know, mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies who use good words and fair speeches to deceive the hearts of the simple. And so we hear a lot of good words and fair speeches spoken, you know, during these political times. Uh, I, I would say, you know, Jesus a lot of times, you know, said, look at the works of people's hands, you know, in Matthew chapter seven, he talked about judge not lest ye be judged, but the same judgment you use to measure people will be measured against you. And it goes on then judging the Pharisees and Sadducees for their hypocrisy. Yeah. So he's able to judge their works. And so when you're picking a senator or a governor or whoever, look at the works that are hands. Talk is cheap. These people will say whatever it takes to get the job done. They will besmirch, you know, they will lie to, to, to get your vote. But uh, what have they done? This past year has been a very emotional year for most of Pennsylvania, destructive and devastating, uncertainty. We uh, had contact with probably about 100,000 people across the state. I told my staff that we, we don't turn anyone away because many of them are calling their representatives and their senators' phones and it's not being answered. So eventually, well, we know Mastriano from Fireside Chats. And so literally we would talk people out of suicide and then refer them to proper counsels, counselors. We, we had people call us in that were trapped uh, during the riots in Philly this past fall who were desperate for help. And, you know, just the cops wouldn't come. The guard wasn't there yet. The governor belatedly once again failed to mobilize them on time. It takes time to get soldiers together. It's not like a movie. Not just, you know, you, you guys aren't sitting there, you know, rapidly deployable sitting by the airplane kind of thing. And we would just try to, you know, talk them down and, you know, help them out. And, and the, the thousands, tens of thousands of uh, people that needed their unemployment benefits paid. And so... Just look at people's, you know, actions. Talk is cheap. Just what have they done last year? And if you if if they're crawling out of the out of the shadows now to get your vote, I'd say steer clear from of them because they're politics and they're politics. Mm -hmm. Well, and that kind of leads me to the, the next question because I mean I know talking to a lot of different Christians, they see, like you said, a lot of uh, uh, surface level just talk and and no actions, and it and it is discouraging. And some of them are like, well. Uh, I just don't want to get involved anymore. It's kind of just like, well, you know, it's, I can't, I can't get involved. I can't do anything about that. I don't even know if I should you know, be so concerned about what goes on uh, in the levels of government. I mean, what advice would you give to those Christians, um, just the average Christians who are not sure or whether to be involved or what to do? And they're very discouraged about this kind of stuff. Well, you know, uh, it's we're in dark times when even many of the Anabaptists, Mennonites, and Amish are now registering to vote. You, you know, it's breaking about 500 years of Reformation history. That's generally true. I know, you know, there, there's some groups that have been voting, a, a, you know, a bit sooner, but yeah. 500 years of Reformation history, and they're like, our country's in bad shape. We're going to lose our families, lose our, lose our lives. We're going to have edicts and, and commandments come down from Harrisburg or D.C. telling us how to run our families, mm -hmm. and uh, they've risen up. And are being active for the Christians out there. If if you are not voting and active politically, then you're part of the problem. You're the reason why abortion exists and stands in Pennsylvania because you stand aside, and you have. If if you're not going to vote, yeah, in my book, you have no right to complain because because by not voting, you don't care which kind of government you have, and as a result, you get the government you, you deserve. 
And uh, we can end abortion. If you give us a supermajority in the Senate, I know it hasn't always been used wisely, but things could be, could have been a lot different than, than being so many, you know, just uh, four or five seats shy of, of having that in the Senate. So how are you going to make a difference? You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I look across time. And so you want to stand aside. And I, I there's, a, there's a false doctrine out there. You know, I'll call it God's will. You know, when, when things don't go your way, you say it's God's will. Really? If, if it's something that includes death and destruction, is that God's will? Isn't he the father of light and life? Isn't he the way, the truth, and the life? So how is something dark and sinister, evil, painful, um, deadly, costly? How, how is that his will? It's not his will. We're in a fallen world. And maybe decisions you made or maybe decisions other people made or maybe decisions a governor made by releasing, you know, about 2,000 convicts because of COVID. Uh, I, I thought the mask worked. You know, maybe that's the result of bad decisions, in, you know, in a sinful fallen culture. So but let's not just say, you know, when things don't go our way, that it's God's will. Was a Holocaust his will? Absolutely not. Nope. He, he's, he's the father of life, you know, of light and life. And t- tell me where he is the author of confusion and death. He's not. Satan is. Okay, so things go wrong politically, and you throw your hands up in the air. Well, that was God's will, was it really? Was it really? Maybe there was a modern-day Esther or Gideon that got the call. Maybe that was you, and you know, instead of doing your part, you copped out and said, "Oh, that's God's will," and that's that's a lazy American church ex- excuse not to be involved. Hmm. And so, when I, we see our country falling apart, and I don't know how many times in Christian circles, you know, we'll see how bad things are morally in our country, and how there's so much terrible things happening, 63 million abortions. That's not God's will. And by, by Christians copying out, you're, you're uh, just you're, you're willing to say, I don't care that it's happening and I'm stepping aside. That's what when you say that's God's will, you said, I don't care. I'm stepping aside because that's not God's will. Tell me one time in history when when things were not changed by a man or woman standing in a gap. You know, what, where are our modern day Nehemiahs, you know, rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem, you know, during this Persian Empire? Where are the modern day Gideons when he gets the call? You know, and basically with a handful of soldiers beats off a, a fierce army. Where are the modern day Esthers with such courage and audacity willing to lay her life down in a comfortable position, you know, as queen, married to King Xerxes, Ahasuerus is his real name, and uh, finds out there's a plot to kill her Jewish people. Her cousin Mordecai says, you know, don't think because you live in that palace, Esther, you're going to escape. Uh, perhaps you've been raised up to such a, a high position for such a time as this. And then he goes on and say, you know, if you don't do anything, you you and your family will die. So, Esther, if you don't do anything, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. There are consequences to your decision. And that's how it is. You know, oh, it's God's will. She could have said, oh, God's will. There would have been results. But instead, she asked people to pray and fast for her for three days. And then she went into the king's uh, presence without permission where she could have been beheaded. That's true. What she said, if I die, I die. She was going to do the right thing. And she saved a people. And so God is looking for no more cop-outs from comfortable Christians in America. He's looking for us to rise up when we're called for such a time as this. I don't know what your calling looks like, but hope, but I know it will, will make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good word, Senator, and I, I appreciate uh, those thoughts. And I know that uh, we're limited on time. I mean, there are so many things I would love to chat with you about. Uh, so much more we could talk about, but I know that you're a busy man. Um, is there any last thing you'd want to say? Anything for, for the audience before we close? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll ask everybody to remember what it says in Galatians 6, 9, you know, grow not weary doing good. Grow not weary in doing good because in due time you'll reap your harvest. So I don't know what God's timeline is, but we do know what his will is. 
So, you know, I focus a lot on what, you know, what his will isn't, but what is his will? It says specifically, God's will specifically is that none should perish, but all should come to salvation. That's his will. Not death, not destruction, not concentration camps, not, not genocide. His, his will is that all should come to salvation. That's, that's his will and his heart's desire. And so anything that you throw up your hands that does not fulfill that goal is a cop out and uh, is a lie, actually. That's not his will. So seek truth and look for ways where you can make a difference. You know, I'm as guilty as the next, you know, pointing to Harrisburg in D.C. when I wasn't, you know, involved and say, those people are all this, you know, all corrupt. You know, throw them all, vote them all. You know, and some of these puritanic Republicans are going to deal with, you know, this day. You know, yeah. they, they voted for Act 77, vote them all out. So great. That, that, what, what a simplistic, foolish, stupid, idiotic thing to say. So you want to have a Democrat Senate and House. Great. That's a fantastic idea. Okay, voting reform is a big deal. And no one else is leading that effort greater, stronger, and louder than I am. That's why Donald Trump calls me up. And that's why I communicate with him often uh, via uh, messages and uh, via phone calls, personal private phone calls. We were outfoxed on the voting reform last year. There was no scheme by the Republicans. The Democrats ran circles around us as they have been and as they do. They're very shrewd mm -hmm. and they stick together like glue. On, on, on an issue like that, Obviously, the, the outrage, you know, and the consternation should be directed towards the Wolf administration, you know, and the Democrats that, that reinterpreted the law, rewritten the law, you know, changed the law, such as that's Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where five of the seven seats are Democrats. Um, but instead, I have no idea why me, a junior senator, and all the other Republican senators are being blamed for something that the Democrats did. This just shows you how insidious it is. Republicans, we need to stick together. We need to stop pissing on each other. We need to get our stuff. We need to get, I'm talking like a soldier now. We need to get our yeah. crap together. For, forgive me out there. I know this is a Christian podcast. Got to get our crap together here and, and head towards the same goal and, and stop stabbing each other in the back. This is nonsense here. And my uh, tolerance and patience for the, the puritanical perfect Republicans, they look in the mirror and that's the only Republican they see when they look in the mirror, that, uh, that they cast these uh, unjust judgments on people that are working for them. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you a little secret as we wind it up here. If, if you want voting reform done, you don't throw underneath the bus the only guy that, that's been out there consistently, loudest, you know, and, and the most, that would be me. Now there's a few others, like, there's a handful of others that are still with us. But that's a very small group. It's an idiotic and stupid thing to attack the, the, the very same people that you need their help, that are that are men of honor and integrity that are fighting that fight and trying to make sure our elections are free and fair in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. That's number one. So embrace those who are on the front line. You don't have to agree with everything. Obviously not. And there's no perfect Republican, not even you. The next group are the people that are on the fence. Now, if you're going to throw grenades and rocks at them, you're going to push them off the fence onto the other side. Yeah. So... Republicans, let, let's stop, you know, hold them all accountable. So self-righteous and indignant. You have to woo them. Talk to them. Have a conversation. Make your case. And maybe they will join your side. But if you're out there screaming and hollering, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth, they're going to drive them away. And then the last group, the group that, that are, you know, your political adversaries, they're, they're fine to go after. You know, those who disagree with you violently that can never be changed. But as Benjamin Franklin said, it sure is easier to catch flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. Oh, well, Senator, I appreciate your time today. Um, thank you for coming on and I uh, hope that maybe sometime in the future we'll be able to do this again. Uh, sometime. Thank you, Eric. So, God bless you, man. Hang in there. All right. Keep up the good fight, sir, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. God bless. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Senator Mastriano. And if you have any questions for him, uh, go to his website, uh, senatormastriano.com, and submit your request or questions there. And I'm sure he'll 
get back to you uh, as time permits. Um, if you have any questions for me, uh, you can find me on Facebook. It's the GBG Podcast, or you can search for Governed by God. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and all those places. But probably the best way to, to get in touch with me would be to email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or just go to ericloophold.com and you will find uh, links to submit questions uh, there. So again, thank you for tuning in and, and until next time, take care and...